My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode five of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. We've been talking about the Roman Empire under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the last of the so-called Five Good Emperors. His reign began right before the empire began its slow decline, gradually losing the slack and extra resiliency which once buffered it from outside shocks. Without this extra margin for error, recovering from massive defeats and setbacks, as Rome had done many times during its republican and early imperial periods, would be a far dicier affair. In our last episode, we talked about the Roman response to the Parthian invasion that drove into Roman territory and defeated two Roman commanders at the beginning of Marcus's reign, and that of his co-emperor, Lucius Verus. The horse warriors of Parthia were an enemy that the infantry-based armies of the Mediterranean had a hard time dealing with, but using innovative new tactics, the Romans were able to counter their advantage, best them in open battle, and push into the Iranian heartland of Parthia, eventually sacking its capital city, Ctesiphon. It's the classic Roman tale of perseverance in the face of adversity and bouncing back after defeat, which anyone who's familiar with Roman history has seen repeated a thousand times. It's fitting, then, that we see this extra slack in the system demoed one last time before things start to change. Episode 5. Plagues Forevermore. The victorious army of Avidius Cassius should have been exuberant. Loaded down with plunder from the sack of Tessaphon and cloaked in the glory of being the force that ended the Parthian War, you'd imagine that their return march to Roman territory should have been a light-hearted affair. It was not. By the dozen, legionnaires were falling out of the march, struck down by a strange ailment. Pus-filled bumps erupted from their skin, and even their eyes. They defecated black, bloody stools, and ulcers filled their throats. Cassius was a fierce disciplinarian known for crucifying men who disobeyed him, but not even his threats could keep the sickened legionnaires on the march. The sorry, weakened force that limped back into Syria months later was a shell of its former self. By the last years of the war, a plague the likes of which the Romans had never seen was spreading through the empire. Marcus's royal physician, Galen, left us a detailed description of the disease, which most researchers think was a strain of smallpox or perhaps several strains. But whatever it was, the Mediterranean world had no immunity to it, and it devastated the people who dwelt along its shores. It was to become known in modern times as the Antonine Plague, after Marcus Aurelius' family name of Antoninus, or as the Plague of Galen, after the physician whose description of it gives us much of our information. Over the previous seven centuries, the Romans had built a world more connected than any that had come before. The Mediterranean Sea was their highway, with connections stretching out to the interior of Africa, India, and China via the Red Sea. Even the deep, wooded hinterland of Germania was connected to the far reaches of the southern Egyptian desert by a well-maintained system of roads. In a world with no understanding of germ theory and no antibiotics, this level of unprecedented mobility was both a blessing and a curse. 
Humans have suffered from disease epidemics since time immemorial, but the vast majority of these outbreaks burned themselves out in isolated communities, rarely traveling more than a few hundred miles before their supply of hosts ran out. But the Romans changed everything with their imposition of an interconnected Pax Romana and the steady population growth in densely built cities that resulted. With a new disease better suited for travel than any that had come before on their hands, they were going to pay for their mobility. 166 AD was to be the year the Romans became acquainted with the downside of their success. Roman cities and army camps were hit the hardest, with most estimates putting the death toll among the legionnaires at around 15-20%, to with a far higher number contracting the disease but eventually recovering. The densely populated cities were also ravaged. Rome, with its population of about a million, lost an estimated 300,000 people. Can you imagine your city losing 30% of its population? The streets would have been piled high with the dead. In Rome, we're told that Marcus paid for the burial of plague victims at public expense, but it's unclear how this would have worked in the empire's other cities. Both rich and poor were struck down in equal measure. Marcus wrote a letter to the ruling council of Athens authorizing a loosening of the membership requirements, a change necessary because there were too few surviving blue-blooded Athenians left who were qualified to participate. The more lightly populated countryside got off easier, but reports show the death toll could be severe even in fairly remote parts of the empire. Records from a village in the Nile Delta called, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, Saknapayo Nessos, tells a grim story. They describe a second wave of the pestilence after the first had undoubtedly carried off many victims. Of the 244 adult males still alive in 178 AD, 58 died in January, and another 19 died in February of 179, during the second outbreak. This implies a mortality rate of 32% among the least vulnerable subpopulation of men during a two-month span. Given contraction rates of modern smallpox epidemics, it's likely that 50% or 156 of the town's 244 men would have contracted the disease during this period. After the first pulse of smallpox was felt in the empire in 165 AD, it whipsawed from region to region until at least 172 in an unstoppable blitz. But the disease seems to have survived in pockets for years afterwards. There are signs of the Antonine Plague in Noricum in 182 and in Egypt from 178 to 179. A second major outbreak hit Rome in 191 when Marcus's son Commodus was on the throne. Cassius Dio tells us that over 2,000 people died in the capital per day during this second pulse of the disease. During the initial plague outbreak, Marcus was presiding over a legal case. One of the lawyers said something during the course of his argument that struck him deeply. Quote, Blessed are they who died in the plague. Unquote. We're told that after hearing this, tears started to flow down Marcus's cheeks openly. The emperor had lost several of his children by this point in his life, and every day more of his countrymen were struck down by an epidemic he could do nothing to stop. It must have been a frustrating experience to be the most powerful man in the world and yet be so utterly powerless against the ravages of a disease. 
The plague and the other hardships Marcus faced seem to have hardened him. We have a number of surviving letters exchanged between Marcus and his friend and tutor, Marcus Cornelius Fronto, during Marcus's 30s and 40s. Marcus comes off as warm and genial. He tells funny stories, like the time he was riding in the countryside with some friends and a cantankerous shepherd accused them of being brigands and threw a walking stick at them. The Marcus of these letters talks about his young children, calling them his chicks, and he goes on about the joys of family life. By the time that Marcus is in his late 40s and 50s, after the plague, he was still kind and caring and still concerned about being the best emperor he could be, but he was not the carefree man of his youth. Not only was his health declining, but he had seen so many of his subjects and his friends and family taken from him by disease. The havoc the epidemic brought about left the survivors open to attack from barbarians living outside the empire, which Marcus would struggle to contain. The impression we get of the later Marcus is someone resigned to an unending struggle. Life had not been easy for him. It may be unfair to compare Meditations, Marcus's personal journal, with the letters he wrote to friends, but the tone he used to write to himself in his later life is often that of a man doing his best in horrible circumstances. At one point, he makes a philosophical analogy by comparing men who don't have virtue or pursue virtue to severed heads and hands cut off from the body they came from. He had been overseeing military operations on the border of Germania around this time, trying to protect his people, and it's likely that he had recently seen such severed heads and hands in some raided Roman village or on a battlefield. Marcus began studying Stoic philosophy in his youth and undoubtedly valued the resiliency and perspective it gave him, but it's here in his later life that we see him leaning on it heavily to keep himself going. Marcus returns to the theme of persevering through pain and hardship again and again in his notebook, writing, quote, Pain is neither unendurable nor everlasting, if you keep its limits in mind and do not add to it through your imagination, unquote. More and more, he took the blows that life threw at him without flinching, seeking to bear the brunt as best he could and shield others from suffering. He writes, quote, It's unfortunate that this has happened. No, it's fortunate that this has happened, and I've remained unharmed by it, not shattered by the present or frightened of the future. It could have happened to anyone, but not everyone could have remained unharmed by it, unquote. Marcus had the stress of high command on his plate, but the common people of the empire were likely as troubled. Virtually no one could have escaped losing a few family members or friends. It would have been hard not to notice the emptied out villages and just how much quieter the empire's grand cities were. Before the outbreak, the empire's population was about 78 million. Modern historians think it lost a minimum of 8 million people from the Antonine Plague, but many estimates double or triple this number. On the far end, you have estimates by historians who think that Rome may have lost half of its population, the empire as well as the city. Beyond the actual deaths, it shattered the health of millions more, leaving some partially or fully blind or otherwise impaired. 
Historian Kyle Harper calls the plague, quote, in absolute terms, the worst disease event in human history up to that time, unquote. If the war against Parthia strained imperial finances, the plague pushed them to the brink. A huge swath of taxpayers were now dead or disabled. Merchants that had once traveled the roads and sailed the Mediterranean were staying home. Loss of so many farmers and the wide-scale disruption kept the usual amount of food from being planted, and famine broke out. During the late 160s through the 170s, we see signs that Marcus was barely holding things together. The imperial silver mines stopped producing silver, perhaps because their workforce of slaves was decimated by the plague, or because raiders had attacked the province of Dacia, where many of the imperial mines were located. A debasement of the currency was necessary to pay imperial expenses, which caused inflation. Prices of many commodities, including the wheat that people relied on to feed themselves, doubled. For 14 long years, from 166 to 180 AD, all significant building projects seemed to have ground to a halt in the empire's major cities. Archaeologists find robust evidence of remains and inscriptions attesting to massive building projects during virtually the entire Republican and Imperial period, but all that vanishes during the Antonine Plague. A similar absence can be seen among archaeological remains in London. We should not imagine the Antonine Plague to be a complete death blow for the Empire, because it was not, and there would be periods of economic and demographic recovery during the subsequent centuries. Even if around 30% of his subjects died during the plague, Marcus would still have ruled over slightly less than the number of citizens the first Emperor Augustus had had 160 years before and the empire was hardly empty even then. But Augustus had reigned over a smaller empire with fewer expenses and a more cooperative climate and fewer outside threats. Emperors after Marcus would have to tax heavily to take in enough revenue from their diminished populations to pay for the expanded army needed to guard the borders, and that would have consequences. This is a subject we'll cover in more depth in episode 12 when we delve more into the idea that it was bad rulership from Commodus and his successors that doomed the Western Empire. For now, keep this grim portrait of plague, economic ruin, and unending warfare in your mind as we go through the rest of the series because it was Marcus's reality. It was the reality of the Romans living at this time. It was pretty bad compared to the Pax Romana that had come before. Had the plague taken place during peaceful times, the empire could likely have started to recover without too many problems, but Marcus was not so lucky. Thanks for tuning into The Turning Wheel. In our next episode, we'll dive into Marcus's attempt to deal with the unruly Germanic and Sarmatian tribes which took advantage of his plague-ravaged empire. Marcus had no experience as a military commander, but will watch as he painstakingly rebuilds the Roman army and personally takes command for a new offensive. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, will you do me two favors? First, Will you give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use and write a few words about why you like the show? 
it really helps us reach more people and that's what's going to keep this show going. Second, do you want to see more episodes like this? Then please support the podcast financially. Donating a few bucks will get you the exclusive bonus episodes from this series, episode 9, which covers Marcus's interesting interactions with the plebs, his lower class subjects. We also talk about his legal reforms and his approach to slavery, one of the bedrock foundations of the empire. You can also submit questions for the Q&A episodes, and you'll receive an ebook containing the entire story of Marcus's life as conveyed in this podcast in one sweet collection. Please go to patreon.com slash the turning wheel to support the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.